Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. You can take it or leave it. <laughs> but what we'll, be, what we'll be looking tonight, obviously, like I said, in 2 Samuel 17, but I want to start out with Genesis 49, verse number 10. And this is where Jacob was prophesying and blessing his children. He was basically giving them his their blessings and he was telling them what was going to happen in their life. In verse number 49, he mentions something that he, or verse number 10, I'm sorry. He mentions something that he doesn't mention towards the other sons. He says to Judah... The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of people be. And this doesn't make sense if we don't understand the rest of Scripture, because there was no scepter to give. There was no nation when Jacob gave this promise. When Jacob blessed his children. But he said, the scepter shall not part from Judah. See, God had told him something that he hadn't told everybody else yet. But what we're going to get into tonight is a partial fulfillment of that promise. When we look down through the scriptures, we understand that Israel requests a king. And this may come as a shock, but that was all according to the plan of God because he'd already promised them that. They request a king. They choose from among themselves a man named Saul, stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And Saul kind of messed up some stuff. But that's not the key to that section. The reason that Saul could not be the king of Israel because that was not promised to the tribe of Benjamin. That's where Saul was from. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. But Jacob had said to Judah, the scepter shall not leave your house. So in order for the fulfillment of this promise to come together, it had to be to a descendant of Judah. And lo and behold, that was who David was. There's also another descendant of Judah that we're going to get into that everybody knows who that one is. But if we move over to 2 Samuel verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 11 through roughly verse 16, what we're coming upon is David is seeing a need. He, uh, he comes in with some stuff and he sees something that is needed and that's a temple. And I think a lot of us may know this account, this story. Basically, David, he brings back the temple and he says, God, I have a house and these other people have a house, but you don't have anything. And what he does is he basically says to God, he said, I'm going to build a house. And we know and understand that... Uh, that's not exactly what happens. And I am apparently have written down something wrong because it is not 2 Samuel 17. I think I bounced my figure that out already. Um, seven. seven. I'm glad somebody was prepared for this evening. 
Yes, chapter seven. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe I should let somebody else do this tonight. Um, a one makes a lot of difference, apparently. Anyway, so Second Samuel chapter number seven. David says, "Lord, I want to build your house." God says, "No," but there's a section here that we need to cover and understand. So we'll look in verse eleven of chapter seven, not chapter seventeen. Verse eleven says, "And as since the time that I." commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused thee to rest from thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee, and he will, sit, will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy father, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of children. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Verse number 17, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spake unto David. So again, we understand what had happened here. David wants to build a house for God. God tells him no. But in verse number 11, God says, actually, we're going to switch that up. You want to build a house for me, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a house for you instead. And this is the covenant that God makes with David. The parallel to this should be, should be in 1 Chronicles 17, but um, given my tracker tonight, that may be 1 Chronicles 7. So don't write down 17. It may be in 7. But the Lord wanted to build the house for David, not vice versa. And that was this covenant. There are in this covenant a dichotomy that is seen. Just like in the covenant with Abraham, you know, we saw the woman that with Abraham, Abraham was promised something physically as a sign for what he was promised spiritually. And we saw that from Scripture. And for David, there is an almost identical thing that happens And if you notice that, you can see some of that being interworked even in the covenant that's made from the mouth of Nathan to David. He says in there, in verse number 13, I will build a house for my name. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And then there's a period there. And then he goes on to say, if he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him. In essence, what's happening here is he is giving David a conditional and an unconditional covenant, just like he gave to Abraham. Abraham was given a covenant that was conditional upon his circumcision that he would get the land in which he sojourned, that he would have a physical son who would have many children. 
and that was contingent on circumcision. But he also had given Abraham a covenant that was contingent on nothing. That's the covenant where we read that Abraham believed and it was counted unto him righteousness. And that one, he was promised a seed down the road. And Paul tells us that seed was Christ. He was promised a specific land, not just a land that he'd walked in, but a specific land. And he was promised that, his, that the descendants of that seed would be more numerous than the, seed, the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. And we see that again, that prophecy will be fulfilled when there are an innumerable amount of people before the throne in the book of Revelation. But to, Abraham, to, add to David, we see this same type of covenant. It's conditional and unconditional. He says that there will be a kingdom forever. But then he says, if he commit iniquity, I'm going to chasten him. So what all this was, was doing is it was something that was promised, but it's like there was a subset contingency to it. And again, if we, don't, if we, if we try and, and, and parachute into these verses just by themselves, we'll miss what's being said here. Because God is speaking to, to David about a kingdom that is to come and a kingdom that is almost there because he even talks to David about his own son. So this dichotomy is, again, conditional and unconditional. And so we're going to flip through and look at a handful of verses here, a few in the, in, uh, the book of Psalms, one in Second Chronicles, to see the conditionality of this covenant, how this covenant was conditional. And then we'll look at some other texts to see how this covenant was also unconditional. And again, just like with Abraham, we're seeing a physical picture of a spiritual reality that is to come. So the book of Psalms, verse 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 132, and verse 10 through 12 is where we'll be looking in Psalm 132. The Bible says there, starting again, starting in verse number 10, For thy servant David's sake... Turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I, will I set upon thy throne. Verse number 12. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I teach to them, their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. So there's a conditionality to this covenant. He said in verse number 12, the condition to this covenant, how are you going to know that David's throne is never going to leave? It's, it's if your children, if the ones who have that throne after them, if they keep his, if they keep his testimony, they keep what he taught them. That was, that, was the, that was the condition. He said, basically, he said, you're going to have to listen to what I've told you. You're going to have to obey what I've commanded you, and you'll have this forever. But if we, if we look back through the history of Israel, we see that it was as quick as Solomon that they decided they weren't doing those things. If you read through the book of First Second Chronicles, the book of First Second Kings, over and over we see the same phrase. And so-and-so did not do as their father David had done. They did not follow the Lord. And occasionally you see some who they did. But the reason that the kingdom of Israel will be 
basically obliterated before Judah ever was is because the kings of Israel never followed the commandments of God. You never see in any of the kings of Israel where they followed after God. They always followed after the gods that were around them. Some notable ones that we know of were Ahab, Jezebel. Those, those kingdoms that followed after other gods, God took that away from them because they did not fulfill those commandments that God had given and then I want to look over again, Second Chronicles chapter number 6, verse number 16. And there the Bible says, Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that which thou hast promised him, saying, so this is what God promised David, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit upon the throne of Israel, yet so that thy children take heed to their way and walk in my law, as thou hast walked before me. So again, we see the conditionality of this covenant. And it was that they walk in the law. And to reiterate, they didn't. They didn't walk in the law of God. They over and over and over and over and over and over did not do that. So how can we see this promise fulfilled? Because obviously we messed it up. And that's what we continuously do with all of these covenants. The Abrahamic covenant messed up. He had Ishmael instead. The Mosaic covenant, we'll do everything you said, God, just like you said it. We'll do everything. And then they didn't. And the Davidic covenant, God will follow your steps so we can keep this kingdom forever. And then one generation later, off the tracks they go. God knows that we are a mess and that we don't listen, that we fall as soon as the reins are handed to us, we mess it all up. God knows this. So in these covenants that he has given, even in the covenants that are conditional, he has an unconditional portion of that covenant. And here's the reason why. Because he knows that he's going to send someone as a fulfillment of the original covenant who will not go an opposite way like Abraham did. He will not break the law like Moses did. And he will not go aside from the laws of God like David and Solomon and Jeroboam and Roboam and all the other kings did. He's going to send someone that fulfills all of these things. That's the reason that he can make these promises that are not contingent on us. Because he says there, he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. And it's not, it's not any coincidence that he makes these statements in verses 13 and verse 14 of, of 2 Samuel 7, where he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. God promised that he would be a father to all those that followed him. He's a father to us. But there, again, there's no coincidence that he's saying it in that specific way. Because he is showing us that there is a father-son relationship that is going to establish this throne forever. And we're going to see this in a couple other places. If you'll turn over to Psalm 110. This is a very familiar text. And we will actually be covering this within the first couple weeks of going through Hebrews. Because this verse is quoted multiple times in Hebrews. But it's actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 7, I believe. Again, get in my tracker tonight. It might be verse number 17. 
But Psalm 110, the Bible says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Spoiler alert, that wasn't David or Solomon. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. So we have that in Psalm 10, and we're going to see that quoted again. But real quickly, turn over to Psalm 132, and we're going to look again at how this unconditional covenant is fulfilled. Psalm 132, verse number 1. Actually, verse number 11, I'm sorry. I am really having trouble with that tonight. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. So God is saying, the God, God has sworn to David truth, and he will not turn from that truth. And how is he going to do that? He's going to say, of the fruit of thy body. So somebody after you is going to sit on that throne. Verse number 12, if thy children will keep my commandment and my, and my testimony, and thou shalt teach them, thy children shall sit on thy throne Forevermore. So we see there's going to be something happen that is unconditional, but also conditional. And again, that's that's in essence what's being displayed here is that something is going on that is both of these things. Now, if you turn over to Acts chapter number two, and if anybody would like to disagree with me, that is absolutely fine. But in Acts 2, we have a commentary of the Old Testament from the Apostle Peter. And he says some things that we don't listen to a lot of times. But I think that Peter is probably a pretty good commentary on the Old Testament. Given that he was an apostle chosen by Christ, I think we can probably take him at his word when he says something. So, let's see what he says about this covenant. He's preaching at the day of Pentecost. He's going through a lot of things. He quotes Joel. He quotes some other of the prophets. But in verse number 29, he says this, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. So he's going to tell us about this covenant. That he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He said he's been dead for a long time. We know where he's buried. You can been going out and putting flowers on there every birthday he has. That probably didn't happen. But therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So who's sitting on the throne? It wasn't Solomon. It was Christ. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. 
He's going to clarify himself. For David is not ascended into the heavens. He's dead. Remember, we just, you know where his grave at. He's still dead. He's not the one that he was talking about. But he said, and he's going to quote Psalm 110. This is what God said. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus who ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter's telling us that this promise was really about Christ. Peter's telling us that this was that unconditional piece of that. He's saying that Jesus rose again, and he's sitting on that throne. His reign's going to be forever. It's not a momentary reign. He's not going to be there until he doesn't keep the law anymore because he kept it all already. So that's how we have the unconditional peace of this covenant, of this dichotomy with the conditional peace. And this, this covenant, unlike some of the others, ran out really quickly in the physical sense. God set up the kingdom so that he could show what he was going to do. And unlike Abraham, which continued on, you could see that promise playing out for a long time. This one played out again within a few generations. It was there and it was gone. But God did that to show what he was getting ready to do. And Peter says the reason that God made this covenant and the reason that he said it's going to be forevermore is because it was actually talking about Christ. He said God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. He's the one that was promised to Abraham as a Messiah, and he's the one that was promised to David as king. He fulfilled both of these things. So understanding this... I want to real quickly transition and look at how Christ is king. So if you'll turn over to Amos chapter number 9, and we're going to look at the same type of covenant as we've looked at before, but we're going to see again how Christ continues to fulfill these things. And I know we've said this before, and at least I have, that the purpose in us going through this isn't so much to try and prove somebody else wrong and say that we're right or or anything along those lines. But the reason that we're looking at all this is because when we get into the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is going to explain all of this stuff to us. And if we set this groundwork of understanding these covenants first, we can build Hebrews on top of that. We can kind of get ahead of the game. We can get the... Uh, what is it whenever you're watching a show, how it gives you what happened right before that so you're not kind of left to figure out what's going on in the show? What's it called? A, uh, I don't know. On Netflix, you can skip it. That's all I know. It's, but it's, it's what you see. Said Yeah, the previously, it'll, it'll even come up there to say previously on whatever show. So it gives you what's happened. And in a sense, that's what we're doing with this series. We're, we're trying to say a previously in the scriptures. So when we go into Hebrews, we don't have to try and figure out a lot of things. We already have a, a foot ahead. So in the book of Amos, chapter number 9, verse number 11 and verse number 12, we're going to be looking again at this promise to David. And understand, Amos has already seen these kings fail. 
Amos is even prophesying judgment. He knows that they already messed things up. But he says something about this covenant with David. He says, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. You remember what God said? David wanted to, David said, God, all you have is a tabernacle. I'm going to build you a house. God said, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. Well, his sons ruined his house. But God says through the, through the prophet Amos, I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and will close up the breaches thereof. He said, I'm going to fix it all. And I will raise up his ruins and will build it as in the days of old that they which possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. In essence, Amos saying, he's saying, I'm going to do something so that everybody can look around and say, well, the Lord did that. Because they see the mess that was made. And they're going to give praise where it's due. So, We've read that in Amos, so let's roll over to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to see some of the fulfillment, I guess you could say, some of the commentary on this passage of Scripture here. Again, we're getting commentary of the Old Testament. And a lot of that, a lot of Acts, you know, we've heard and we've even probably said that Acts is transitional, but what Acts is doing in that transition, it's explaining how the old covenant was came come into by the new covenant. It's explaining how they came together. So if you try and, and that's again, that's the reason that it said if you try and pull specific doctrines from Acts, you can mess things up. It's because what Acts is doing is it's showing how the old covenant and the new covenant coincide with one another. We're not in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant, but it's showing how they, they coincide. Anyway, Acts chapter 15, verse number 13 through verse number 18. Again, we have a commentary of this section of Scripture that we just read. Verse number 13, the Bible says, And after that they held their peace. And we have the apostle James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simon, or Peter, hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take them out of the of." to take out of them a people for his name. To this agree the words of the prophets, as it was written, and I will return, and, and as it is written, after this I will return, and I will build up the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Know unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He says, known unto God are all these things. He said, God already knew all this. We didn't, we're just figuring it out. But God already knew all this. And he's saying that this same person who Amos said would come and would build again the tabernacle of David that had fallen down and fill in all the cracks and set it back up so that all of the Gentiles could be called in, that was Jesus. He fixed it. He fixed this kingdom. And what we're going to try and articulate 
is that Jesus is now reigning over a heavenly kingdom that will be completely fulfilled upon his return. And we see these, and I'm not going to go to all these texts, but Matthew chapter number 11 and verse number 27, Matthew chapter number 26 and verse number 64, and Matthew chapter number 28 and verse number 18, along with the last section of the book of Mark and a few places in Luke. We have Jesus himself saying, all power has been given unto me. He says that in, a, in multiple places. And he tells them, he says, look, I've been clued in on how this works because it was my plan to begin with. Everything's been handed to me. Psalm 110 is being fulfilled. The Lord said in my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's been given all the power. Jesus is currently reigning today over his kingdom. And his kingdom is seen in the church. His kingdom is seen among his own people. And again, we saw some of that with the Noahic covenant, how God is giving common grace because he's ruling over everything. He's giving common grace to the world, but he is actually building his kingdom within the church. And when we get into the end of the age... We're going to see everything physically fulfilled that we see spiritually entailed to us now. We can see it physically happening within the church, but we're going to see what's physically happening in the church become the reality across the world. And that can actually be found in the book of Daniel in chapter number 7. In the book of Daniel, chapter number 7, Daniel has a vision. There's a statue, has a head of gold and... I don't remember all the rest of it, but everybody, I think most of everybody knows what I'm talking about. He says, the head, there's a head of gold. You get down to the feet. I think the feet were made of clay. But he says, all of these are the kingdoms of the world. He said, the top is Babylon, and he goes on. And what we see is the kingdoms effectively coming in in history. Well, here's what he says happens. And when we get to the Rome, at the bottom, which is at the bottom, we get to Rome, and he says, a rock comes out of the sky lands on the statue, busts it to dust. And then he said this rock gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it takes up the whole world, which makes no sense unless you see Christ. Because what happened during the reign of Rome? There was a man who was born. His parents had to go to a census that was given by the emperor of Rome. He was born. They called his name Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. So this, what did he call himself? On this rock, I will build my church. Remember that section? This rock comes down from heaven. Paul says, remember that rock in the Old Testament? That was Christ. This rock comes down from heaven. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it takes over everything. So where all of these little kingdoms have come in and come out and come in and come out, This rock is taking over everything until one day he says, okay, all this was mine. And we're going to see when that happens here in just a second. So when does this happen? If we go back to Psalm 110, he said, I want you to sit on my right hand until, Psalms 110 says, until all of your foes are made your footstool. If we go over to Acts chapter number two, verse number 20, verse number 34 we see something very similar. 
and I think we've already read this, but for David is not ascended unto the heavens, but hath said unto himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of thy foes thy footstool. First Corinthians chapter number 15, verse number 25. We see almost an exact quotation of this there. And Paul is making a case for something very specific. And we'll get into what that is here in just a second. But 15, verse number 25 and we actually read this at funerals or this section at funerals a lot of times. But the Bible says, For he must reign till he hath put all of his enemies under his feet. And keep your finger there because we're going to come back to the very next verse here in just a second. Hebrews chapter number 1, verse number 13. Again, we'll be covering this here in a few weeks. But when we get over to Hebrews 1, verse number 13, we see again this same type of idea that is given says by to which of the angels saith at any time sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool so he's saying he didn't say this to an angel he said it to Jesus Revelation chapter number one it's the very beginning of the vision of John verse number five and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What does it say that he is? It said he's the prince of the kings of the earth. Right now, God is in control over everything. Christ is reigning over everything. But when is the culmination of his reign, spiritually speaking, going to end? And if you look back at 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, we can see that. And we see that throughout all these different texts. But in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, it says that he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So here's what we see happening in this covenant. The covenant that was given to David was an unconditional covenant and a conditional covenant. We understand that. We've gone through that. The conditional was messed up. The unconditional was fulfilled in Christ. I think we've made the case for that. Christ said himself, I have been given all power. He said that right now. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. David or Daniel prophesied that this would happen. If you look throughout the Old Testament, all of these prophecies, you can see Christ fulfilling these things because something comes and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's one place where a temple comes. Water flows out of the temple. The water gets bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more stuff comes alive. It eventually runs into the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea comes alive. All of these texts were speaking of Christ. Because what we are going to see throughout the history of the world and even in the continuation of time until death is destroyed is the gospel going further and further and further and further. It's going out to more and more and more and more people. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, Christ is going to say, okay, all of my other enemies have been sufficiently destroyed. Now I'm going to take care of the last one. 
the one that has been afflicting both the unsaved and the saved since Adam fell. There's been an enemy that I came, honestly, it's I came after him to begin with. I took his sting. He can't do anything anymore. That's what we saw. In, if you read through 1 Corinthians, that is the case that Paul is making. Christ will one day, and we don't know when that time will be, but he will decide that he has sufficiently destroyed all of the enemies that have come against him. He's going to destroy death. That's the end. That is the end of the age. When he takes death and hell and casts them into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And he says, after this, there will be no more death. He says, okay, we're done. And his, his reign will not end. That's not what Paul's insinuating. Paul is explaining to us that God is in control of everything in your life, in this world, in the spread of the gospel. He's taking care of it all until the end of the age. And the angels are going to separate the wheat from the tares. They're going to separate the fish from the trash. They're going to separate all of these things because it's done. And then we'll be with him forever. His reign's not going to end. It's just going to change. That spiritual reign that he has right now, although it's physically displayed in his power over everything, that spiritual reign that he has within the church, when the church operates in the way that the church is meant to operate, when those that he has called out from the nations operate in the way that they're all to operate, you see his kingdom in little tiny pictures all over the place. You see how things are supposed to happen. Even in a little bit of a sinful manner, you see little, little specks of what God is trying to do. But there's going to come a day where he's going to say, okay, death, it's done. It's over. I'm sick of what you have done to my people. I'm putting you out of the way. And what we see in little tiny specks in all of the churches with all of the people across the world is going to become the normal. It's going to become the reality. It's going to be like that forever. God is going to renew his creation. And Christ is going to be the one who's reigning over it all. And for the rest of eternity, this creation will be living with one another in complete love, displayed in little tiny sections in the church because the church messes it up just like everybody else has always messed everything up. In our own sinfulness, instead of displaying the kingdom of Christ, we display our own depravity to the world more than we display anything else most of the time. But there's coming a day when he's going to take care of that. He's promised that he is going to reign forever. And this is the covenant that was given to David. He said, you messed it up. Even those that come after you are going to mess it up. But there's coming a day that my reign is going to be complete in its entirety. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more crying. And the Lord shall be the light of it all. That's the hope that we have. We can see it in little places. We can know that it's going to happen because he's reigning right now, but eventually death will be taken out of the way. And the promise that he made to David is going to be on full display to the whole world. All of his people. And it's not contingent on us. It wasn't contingent on David. It's not contingent on Solomon. It's not contingent on anybody. It's not contingent on Donald Trump. It's not contingent on Joe Biden. It's not contingent on Vladimir Putin. It's not contingent on anyone because he's already taken care of it. He's just going to prove himself. And that's what we have to look forward to. So let's pray.